Okay, in the uh, classic gangster mu movie, The Usual Suspects, one of the characters utters this line. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Now, the point that The Usual Suspects is making here is that you and I probably don't really live in fear of the devil because we think it is all superstitious mumbo-jumbo, which might have crossed your mind as Venuti read that passage. But of course, the devil doesn't really care if you believe in him or not. Uh, his aim is for you to not believe and trust in God. He's quite happy that we continue to put our trust in the things of this earth, things like possessions and proof and power. You may not see or hear the devil like Jesus does in this passage, but if you're ever tempted and tested to be drawn away from having your mind or your heart set on Jesus, well, then the devil is doing his job. And these tricks of proof, possession and power, they're the same tricks that have been used all through that family tree of Adam that we looked at last time. The devil uses possessions, proofs and power to tempt us away from possessing the love of the only one with the proven power to rescue us. Now, the devil is very much entwined with Jesus' family ties, and he hopes that when he meets Jesus, that Jesus will follow in those family footsteps as well. But as verse 1 tells us, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was led by that Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And this was a, a spiritual battle on earth with the devil. But Jesus has God's Spirit on his side. Now, the first test that the devil brings, it comes after Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. The devil tests whether Jesus is the Son of God. He, he dares him to use his God powers to turn stones into bread. We know that in the past, food-based temptations, like in the Garden of Eden, they've worked pretty well in this family line. So the devil thinks, why not try them again? Take the easy way out, Jesus. Have a bit of a binge, Jesus. Some comfort eating, Jesus. You know you've earned it. I wonder if that's maybe how you talk to yourself sometimes. But Jesus responds to the devil saying, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. Now, Jesus is quoting a passage from centuries earlier where God's people were in the desert and they did not trust in God's word to provide for them, but they greedily stockpiled food and grumbled against God. They put their trust in gaining possessions for themselves rather than trusting in God to provide for them. But Jesus is making it clear here that he takes God at his word, not just relying on food in the belly or anything else that he could possess. Now, we'll come back to the uh, second test at the end because the devil's third test really builds upon that first one. In this third test, he takes Jesus to the top of the temple and he dares him to jump off. He's basically saying, you take God and his word, do you? Okay, well, how about these words from God? And then the devil quotes God's words to Jesus about angels protecting God's son on earth so his foot wouldn't even hit a stone. See, so think about it. If Jesus was to jump off that temple and angels flew down from heaven and grabbed him, surely that would be an awesome show right there in the centre of Jerusalem. 
everyone would now know that this Jesus bloke is the real deal. It would be cracking proof, wouldn't it? It would be cold, hard facts that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, we trust in proof, especially proof that might confirm what we already think should be true. I mean, how much do we think that if God is real, well, then he should show himself to us. He should speak to us. He should meet us on our terms. See, the devil knows that that's what we want, and so he puts that temptation to us all the time. Where is the proof for the existence of God? We want photographs. We want CCTV footage. We want the data. And we trust that if it can't be proven, like some sort of experiment perhaps where someone who claimed to be protected by God threw themselves off a building and is rescued by angels, well, if that doesn't happen, well, then God ain't real. But Jesus replies to the devil that God's word also says, do not test the Lord your God. God longs for us to inquire and research and study his word, but ultimately he wants us to trust, not test, his word. And so with two earthly temptations covered, possessions and proof, the devil now has has one last roll of the dice. And he goes and shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And this is where the devil's evil rule is currently at work. And he says in verse 6 to Jesus, he says, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. Now this test is the most dangerous because even though the devil has been given temporary rule of this earth, God's promised son in the Bible was spoken of as being the one who would eventually truly inherit everything on earth forever. The devil knows this. And he knows that if he can get Jesus, uh, if Jesus gets to that cross, sorry, and Jesus conquers sin and conquers death, well then Satan's going to lose his grip on those kingdoms. And so he wants Jesus to shortcut getting those kingdoms here. Serve the devil, inherit all the kingdoms, and avoid the pain and suffering of the cross. Now, you might think that power as God's son, that's something that Jesus should just cash in, even if it means selling out to the devil. That's how we pursue power, isn't it? When we want power or strength or respect or street cred, we want the instant, immediate benefits, the power now. But what we are really doing is becoming powerless. We're keeping ourselves in that holding pattern of being slaves to sin. And so Jesus' response to the devil in verse 8 is him stepping into that moment and breaking that family line of sin. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is calling the devil out here. His snares of possessions and proof and power, they will not work with this son of God and they will not work with anyone who follows that son. The devil knows this. He knows he can't prevent Jesus from going to the cross, and so he kind of just slips out of uh, view here, and then he starts working to ensure that the cross is as painful and as shameful and as treacherous as possible. And just as the devil taunted Jesus with that line, if you are the son of God, well, so too did the crowds jeer at Jesus as he hung from that cross. They said, if you are God's chosen one, save yourself. Pack it in. The offer still stands. Come down from that cross, Jesus, and the devil will give you the kingdoms of the earth in their splendour. 
See, right up until Jesus' death, these were the devil's taunts. But when Jesus breathed his last, the devil fell silent too. Because where the other sons of God had not trusted the Lord, but had given in to diabolic temptation, well, Jesus was faithful on his day in the wilderness and that day on the cross. By trusting in Jesus, his victory in the desert becomes our victory. And so we're no longer slaves to sin. Now we can resist temptation like him. Those tests and temptations for possessions and proof and power, while the devil may not be whispering those things directly in your ear, they are still everywhere. We just don't realise that he's behind them all. Jesus' temptation in the desert reveals what's going on beneath the surface of our earthly existence. See, it's not just the world's fake news, photoshopped, AI-generated unreality that's lying to us. No, it's the devil. He can't give us possessions or proof or power because all those things are only on loan to him. And because of Jesus' death and his conquering resurrection, the devil's rent is now due. His words are bluffs. The question is whether we will keep giving in to those words or whether we will follow the call of the one who is the very word of God himself, the word by which we can possess powerful proof of God's love for us.